Section 3 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, March 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Two Hundred Miles Up the Coscoquim by Charles Halleck. Many mighty rivers besides the Yukon flow out of Alaska into Bering Sea, of which the largest and most notable is the Kuskokwim. It is eight hundred miles long. From its source in the geographical center of the province, it flows with many a majestic sweep and sinuous curve out from granite walls, through rounded foothills and level plains, into the bosom of the sea some two degrees north of the Aleutian Peninsula and with the great bay of the same name, into which it empties, constitutes the phenomenal counterpart in the Pacific of the Bay of Fundy and the river Petticodiac on the Atlantic, though the Kuskokwim is beyond comparison the larger river of the two. It is so wide at its mouth that its shores are invisible from mid-channel, and it is navigable for barges for a distance of five hundred miles up. The tide rises fifty feet, and when it runs out, exposes a vast area of oozy mud flats sixty miles wide at the entrance of the river, which are seamed with countless shallow, dirty rivulets flowing seaward. Very different is its physical aspect when it is bank full at flood. It shimmers then like an inland ocean studded with myriads of mossy islands. The head of the tide is one hundred miles upstream, at a trading post called Mamtra Kalagamut. Boats ascending the river must wait for the tide, whose flow is irresistible even by steam power, for it rises vertically over eight feet an hour, filling up the vast chasm which forms its bed in the brief space of six hours, though there is an entire absence of anything like a tidal bore rolling in and overwhelming everything in its impetuous career. This phenomenal procedure is an old fable which used to be current regarding the Bay of Fundy until people learned differently and graphic recitals were told of pigs which had been foraging in the flats, scampering before the advancing wave and being presently overtaken and engulfed. On the Kuskokwim, there are no less than sixteen trading posts and villages within the first four hundred miles of its mouth. Messrs. Hartman and Wineland, Moravian missionaries from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who are men of marked ability, located a school and mission at Kolmikovsky, two hundred miles up, as long ago as 1885. And the description of the river which here follows, with the accompanying illustrations, is from observations made by them on their initial trip. They afford a very realistic picture of summer life in the interior of Alaska, and will serve to counteract the popular impression that the country is wholly frigid and barren. When these gentlemen first arrived at the mouth of the river in June, the salmon fishing was at its height, varying little, if any, from the running season on the St. Louis tributaries. The eastern bank of the estuary was swarming with native fishermen, Eskimos, whose huts were strung along the top of a narrow dike at high water mark in close continuity for miles, crowding each other so closely that there was hardly room for more. 
This dyke was fringed with altars, willow, birch, and poplar saplings interspersed, flanked by a vigorous growth of coarse sedges and bulrushes. Back of the dyke, or levee as it would be called in the southern states, the country is a flat waste, covered with a spongy bed of moss or tundra, from six inches to a foot deep and destitute even of shrubs. Great deposits of driftwood from above line the shore and afford fuel for the resident inhabitants, who number several thousands, but whose ranks are swelled in the fishing season by ascensions from the Yukon to a total of perhaps seven or eight thousand. There is a portage of sixty miles from the Yukon to the Kukiskwim, which has been traveled for a century by employees of the Russian Fur Company and others since. The salmon are taken chiefly in dip nets along the banks, and our travelers measured a specimen which weighed 41 pounds and measured 3 feet in girth and nearly 4 feet in length. Though the Yukon is the great arterial drainage conduit for the summer meltings from the snow-capped mountain ranges which traverse the interior and are consequently filled with glacial mud, big salmon are found in it and in some of its clear-water tributaries there is an abundance of large grayling and so-called salmon trout. Leaving the steamer, in which they had taken passage from San Francisco, at the mouth of the river landing stores, the missionaries proceeded up the stream in company with four freighting barges destined for upper posts. Their own private conveyances were native bidarkas, or sealskin canoes decked over, each with three manholes, the passenger occupying the central hole, and the paddlers the end ones. A three-hour sail brought them to one of the storehouses above mentioned, located near the outlet of a small, deep river, it being eleven o'clock at night and still daylight. The weather was clear, but headwinds detained them for the next five days. Starting on June 18th at 2 a.m., just before sunrise, they made an eight-mile pull to a village of about ten barbaras, or native houses, named Kuskawegamut. It is well to remember these names. And lying by until one o'clock, attempted to snooze, but were distressed by ravenous mosquitoes. Then a two-hours paddle found them at three o'clock at the village of Apokachamut, numbering about 150 inhabitants, located on a small tributary of the Kuskokwim, where large numbers of beautiful salmon were lying on the bank waiting to be dressed. All the people were dressed in sealskin coats and wore beads and ivory ornaments. Lying by twelve hours, starting again at three o'clock in the morning, always waiting for the tide to serve, they arrived at Togyar Hazoramut at eight, and after breakfast made a sixty-mile run to Logavigamut, mute means village. Traveling was delightful. A fine breeze kept the mosquitoes off. Point after point was reached and left behind. The skin boat seemed to glide through the water. Quote, As we went on, the river grew narrower, so that the opposite bank became distinctly visible. The river, which hitherto had been an unbroken stream, was now divided by numerous islands into many channels. The shores were lined with a higher growth of underwood, and thickets of small birch-trees alternated with grassy or mossy banks. The tide was also sluggish." The next day, sailing still among enchanting wooded islands, they came to Napahigamut, where a lot of Eskimos were in their kayaks or sealskin boats with a single hole, fishing for salmon with gill-nets. 
Soon they passed Napahagayamut and, rounding an island, came in view of the important trading station of Mumtreklagamut, situated on a high bank, with a background of pine trees and a hill range in the distance. The tide here rises about four feet. The station comprises two large, well-built log houses and several smaller ones, and a Russian bathhouse, or Kashima, besides the usual annex of native Barbabaras. Here the boatmen struck for higher wages, as they always do, but were finally conciliated by the factor of the trading post. The dogs here were numerous, and howled so as to disturb the missionary when he was reading the 116th Psalm by daylight at 1 o'clock a.m. The cause proved to be a wrestling match between two rivals for the permanent possession of a woman. The following day they proceeded up a winding channel whose banks were clad with pine trees forty feet high, and finally reached Kekalagamut, where they counted fifty birch-bark canoes, which here begin to replace skin ones. The village contained 216 people, and was situated in low, marshy ground with an abundance of mosquitoes. On the 27th of June, they stopped at a small Eskimo fishing station, where they met a white mining prospector coming down. The villages of Akaigamut, Lulukiak, and Kivigalagamut were afterwards successively passed, and the following day found them at the fishing station of an enterprising half-breed, when rain began falling, the first of any consequence since they left Unalaska on the 16th of May. Still proceeding upriver, more villages, Yugavik, Kalakagugumut, Okagagumut, were passed, all under the influence and civilization of the Greek church. And at last, after a journey of nine days, the great focal trading center of this district, Komakovsky, was reached. Ranges of snow-covered mountains were visible the day previous, with foothills clad with pine, up whose somber glens favorable glimpses were had at times. Komolkovsky consists of seven log buildings built in the form of a square, including a church and hexagonal block house built 50 years ago. It stands on a bluff. The country seems much more populous than Alaska had been credited with being. All the white traders whom the missionaries had met had adopted native women as partners, who were very decorous in manner and behavior. Their children of prepossessing appearance dressed in European fashion and trained in the ways of their white fathers. There are some fifty children at Nepamut, a village ten miles higher up the stream. These people know nothing about intoxicating liquors. Kolmikovsky is two hundred miles above the mouth of the Kuskokwim. There is another trading coast called Venizali, twenty days' journey still farther up. The missionaries retrace their voyage from this point, reaching the mouth of the Kuskokwim on July 17th in nine days' time, while the journey upstream occupied 21. The weather for the previous fortnight had been fickle, sometimes bright and often rainy, warm and cold by turns, and frequently too hot for comfort. Thence they cruised along the seacoast, following its indentations to Good News Bay, a large and beautiful basin surrounded by lofty mountains, and passing safely through its narrow entrance on the surf of an incoming tide, came to anchor at the head of the bay in front of a village of 150 people of mist complexion, and some of them almost white. By taking a canoe route from there across the neck of a mountainous headland or cape, it was possible to reach their place of destination at Togiak Bay 
and thus avoid a perilous coastwise journey outside and so pulling up a winding mountain stream beautifully clear and very rapid which finally cut a deep crooked rut through a mossy swamp with high grass lining the banks they came to a portage and crossing the divide entered a chain of lakes which formed the headwaters of the stream which they had to descend the lakes of which there are four are small the largest scarcely a mile in length with water beautifully clear and sweet and full of red salmon some of which their native guides speared this fish is probably salvanius malma or dolly varden one characteristic of these fish was quote, a big swelling on the back close to the neck end quote. Parentheses. can these be the same as the red fish of idaho described by captain bendire end parentheses. their flavor was not highly esteemed the outlet of this chain of lakes which the canoe followed was at first so narrow and crooked as to be scarcely passable but it soon developed into quote, a winding mountain torrent alive with trout some of which we saw shooting through the water with incredible velocity the paddlers had little to do except to let her run and keep her off the banks at the bends the scenery was very beautiful the view bounded on either side by well-shaped mountains green with sphagnum rising from the plain below with snow still resting on them in patches the region was quote, one vast solitude over which bears and birds hold undivided sway on july twenty sixth the voyagers took dinner at the deserted village of azaivegumut and then made their way in a short time to togiak bay having occupied three days in crossing the divide quote, brother wineland shot some ducks and four geese and the natives speared a large salmon subsequently the missionaries made a trip up the togiak river which occupied two days, and after visiting several villages with polysyllabic names, they returned to the coast, where they found a hamper from their friends of the Alaska Commercial Company, bless them, which, quote, contained 30 good cigars, parentheses, it seems the brethren smoke, and parentheses, four large cakes of tobacco, two tins of boiled oysters, two of corned beef, one of fresh boiled beef, three tins of sardines, one of peaches, one of corn, and one of peas, end quote. So the record runs. End of section three.